0: So we're starting this new series, and as I was thinking of the series, and especially the chapter we'll be in today, it reminded me of an exercise that the elders went through just recently. We went through um, answering the question, what would we do if the senior pastor got hit by a bus tomorrow? Now, I was a little disturbed because They seemed all too eager to engage in that exercise. They took Bill Belichick's next man up (laughs) encouragement far too seriously. There was no mention of a funeral, no remembrances, anything like that. We just get right into the planning. I, I jest a little bit. We did actually sing some ballads and cry together and then got into the planning. Now imagine if that process went something like this. God has a special conversation with the chairman of the elders, and he says, I want you to go and anoint the next senior pastor of this church with oil. And it's going to come from this church, and I'm not going to tell you specifically who it is. You actually just need to go out and start having conversations with people. So he begins this process of elimination or deduction, however you want to think about it. He begins with, talking to all the elders, and he looks at them and says, oh, you know, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, qualified individuals, probably one of these individuals. And God says, nope, faithful, but not my person. And then he goes and starts talking to key leaders, committee leaders, uh, ministry leaders. God says, no, key volunteers, no, key business leaders in the community nope. Gives him a little nudge. God says, you know what? I want you to go to the youth department. And now we start thinking, ah, Pastor James. Okay, I can see that. I mean, we're still a little annoyed with him because he ruined Christmas, but think about it. James has a beard. Charles Spurgeon had a beard. We could potentially have the next Prince of Preacher on our hands. So we don't even, like, engage a search committee. We're ready to pour the oil. And before the first drop of oil touches James' head, God says, no, not him either. I'm actually thinking of that quiet, young teenage boy over there. I want you to go and anoint him with oil. Let me ask you the question. Do you feel comfortable with that process? tell me no and i'll tell you if you don't feel comfortable with that then you probably shouldn't be comfortable with the way god selected israel's greatest king king david and that's what we're looking at here in this series the making of the leader how god brought up this young shepherd boy david and ascended him to the throne to become the king of israel Now, there's a designation that God gives to David. He says, he is a man after my own heart. Now, that designation alone should cause you to lean in and listen closely. I mean, I want to be a man after God's own heart. Maybe you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, how? How does one become that? Well, we're going to begin that journey this morning by looking at chapter 16. So if you have a Bible with you, or you can find it on your app on your phone or whatever, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13 to you, First Samuel 16. So here's the story. Here's how it all begins. Uh, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Samuel did what the Lord commanded. He came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said to Samuel, Now listen closely to these two verses. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for he will not, we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and handsome and had beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. And we want to understand first the central theme of this chapter. If you're not part of our church, we systematically make our way through the scriptures, and we might read a story like this and think, well, what does this really have to do with me? But I'll tell you, all of God's word is meant for today. It's meant for you. And the central theme of this chapter begins in verse 1. The text tells us that the Lord says, I have provided for myself a king. Now, the key word is the word provided. The word could either be translated as provided, it could be translated as sees, and it occurs nine times, the root of that word, nine times in this text. So, this is a story first about perceptions, what we see versus what God sees. It's also a story about choices, Now, we're going to begin with that idea of choice. You think about the next big decision you need to make, or a big question that is on your heart right now. And the scriptures are always going to be asking you a big question when it comes to those matters. Should I be choosing for myself, or should God be choosing for me? That's really the central dynamic that's been taking place thus far in this book of 1 Samuel. We're dropping into the middle of a story. Here we are, we pick up, and Samuel's grieving, and, and we find out that Saul's leadership has failed. We have to ask the question, well, how did we get here? What's transpired before? Well, Saul was the type of guy that everyone looked at and thought, wow, He is the man for the job. And he began so well. I mean, he he was the kind of guy that could build an army up and, and defeat surrounding nations who were oppressing Israel. He had brought stability back into the nation. This was an unprecedented time for Israel in some ways. But he had a fatal flaw. Two times now in this story he disobeys God. If you want to learn a little more about that story, you can go back later today and look at 1 Samuel chapter 13 and then 1 Samuel chapter 15. And from God's perspective, the disobedience that Saul performed was an unmitigated disaster. He wasn't the right guy for the job for that very reason. Now listen to what Samuel says to Saul as his kingship is being rejected. It's chapter 15, verses 22 to 23. He says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And the idea of sacrifice here is really just doing things for God. You know, If I do enough good things for God, he'll be pleased with me. He'll accept me. He'll think I'm the right kind of person for him. And God's saying, look, no, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for you to just kind of perform things for me. I I want a people that listens, that has big ears, that does what I say. So Saul wasn't the, the leader that Israel needed but as you look at the story, he is the leader that they deserved. Again, you ask, well, how did they get Saul? But really goes back to a different book of the Bible. It's the book of Judges. And in this book, Israel has come into the promised land. They've conquested the land. And multiple times in the book of Judges, they outright disobey one of God's commands. So he allows the surrounding nations to come in and oppress Israel. And then, of course, he raises up judges. Judges are saviors or deliverers. They beat back the oppressors. And there's some sense of peace and stability in the land. Now, as we get into the book of 1 Samuel, this is the next part of the timeline Israel really hasn't learned the spiritual lessons that God's trying to teach them. No, they try to come up with their own solution to this oppression problem. The elders of Israel, they go up to Samuel and they say, Samuel, find us a king who looks like the kings of the nations who are oppressing us. I mean, this is their self-chosen solution. If only we had a king, then we would be better organized. If only we had a king, then he could create a stand in militia, and he could really make things happen for us. The problem with all of this, though, is that God said this to Israel, I didn't select you because you were great and mighty. I didn't select you because there was something superior about you in comparison to the nations around you. No, I selected you because you're actually to be a peculiar people. Distinct, different from all the people around. And now you're asking for a king so that you can be just like them? So Samuel tells them, he emphasizes time and again, that Saul was the king that the people chose for themselves. He describes Saul as this way, the king you have chosen for whom you have asked, your king. But now here in 1 Samuel 16:1, God says, I'm sending you to Bethlehem for I have provided a king for myself. So that's the contrast here, isn't it? your king, your choice for yourself, or are you going to allow me to choose for myself? Now, The measure of your life is going to be really evaluated or determined by how you approach your big decisions and your problems. Do you want to solve your own problems, make your own solutions, what you think is best, or are you interested in seeing God's will take place in your life? Do you want his will? Do you long for His purposes to play out? Here's a big question. Who knows best? You see, the spiritual principle that's been emerging in 1 Samuel is this. God knows best. And God's the best chooser. Blessing comes into your life when you seek out His choices for your life, not when you seek your choices for your life. And when you let God choose, of course, things go God's way. So are you going to let God choose your decisions, whether big or small? Are you going to let him choose in the midst of your problems that you're facing? Are you going to let him choose even as you're praying for other people? I was thinking about this principle. We've been in a search process for a pastor of worship and transformation, you know, up until I had read this passage, I can honestly say I didn't pray this. I I think my intent was in this direction, but I finally this week just paused, and I said, Lord, choose a pastor for yourself, because if we choose a pastor for ourselves, we're probably going to get another saw on our hands, but you choose the person that you know is the right fit. I might have a list of qualifications in my mind, but you know the best qualifications. You choose your pastor. Maybe you're single. Maybe you long to find that right someone. And I remember back when I was single, I had a list of qualifications for the right someone for me to marry. I mean, obviously top of the list was good looks and then we kind of made our way down. But imagine approaching God differently than we normally approach him when it comes to that big decision. Normally we pray, God... Here's my checklist. Can you bring that person along that checks all the boxes? Lord, I know that if that person enters into my world, then I'm going to be self-fulfilled. I'm going to be happy. But what if instead I prayed, God, choose someone for Yourself? Because I know this whole marriage thing is not ultimately about me. It's not ultimately about my self-fulfillment and my happiness. No, this is a partnership, a covenant relationship for your glory and for your purposes. What if we prayed like that for our children? God, choose your career for them. Your desired future for them your preferred spouse, not, not the career that I think or the future that I long for them, but, but your purposes. What if that was just how we started praying? God, that criticism I received at work, will you choose your way in that and how I respond? Not, 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 not how I'm feeling right now, but But your purpose is for it or a big decision with a career change god i want your career i want to live where you would have me live i'm telling you this would change your life it would slow things down it would take a lot of that stress and anxiety that you feel because we're constantly like making decisions and we have no idea how they're going to turn out and you're placing the ownership of the decision in god's hands let's continue along in this story. As we look at the next parts, I want to just acknowledge that there's something encouraging about the Lord's instructions in that first verse. I mean, who here hasn't chosen for themselves at some point along the way? But what we see happening and transpiring in this story is a new beginning. God's actually overcoming a bad decision. And he's saying, look, you made a really bad choice. Now I'm going to choose. Here's what I love about God. God often saves us from our own saviors, our own self-chosen solutions. It's time for God to get to work. So he calls Samuel and he tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem. Now you have to understand, Samuel is a little fearful over this trip because as the kingmaker of Israel and the prophet among prophets saw monitors where this guy goes, especially since Samuel just said, the Lord has rejected your kingship. So he tells God, I'm afraid, and let's just be honest, it probably wouldn't have been a good idea for Samuel to get on a donkey and put a band behind him and saying, anointing we will go, anoint, not a good idea. No, instead, he says, Lord, he'll kill me if I go, and looking at Saul's future actions, you would have killed him. So the Lord says, take a heifer, go down there with the intention of offering a sacrifice. Samuel's a Levite. He's more than capable of doing that. He makes the journey from Ramah to Bethlehem, and as he arrives, the elders of the city of Bethlehem, they get a little fearful because when Samuel shows up, he either shows up with God's blessing or with a stick. And they're really hoping it's not the stick. Do you come peaceably? Yes, I come peaceably. Gather together, consecrate yourselves. We'll offer a sacrifice tomorrow. Bring the sons of Jesse before you. Now everyone's all lined up in the ceremony, and then we get to verses 6 and 7. Let's read that again. When they came, he looked on Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we know even right now that God has not told Samuel just whom he intends to select. And I think God did this for a reason. I think God needs to overcome some really bad ideas that Israel had adopted. They think that they can look and and, and on an impression basis, know who the right king is. And here we have Samuel operating purely on his perceptions, his impressions. And he looks at Eliab and he thinks, this is the guy. I better get the oil ready here. And let's just be honest, we probably would have had the oil ready too because Eliab, I mean, he's a fine specimen of a man. He was probably like 6'2", 225 pounds of muscle. He probably smelled like one of those models, you know, like just a handsome guy, all-star quarterback with Bethlehem High. When you looked at a guy like Eliab, you knew that future was his middle name. But you know... The things that impress us do not impress God. That's why God's a better chooser. He can see things more clearly. Man looks on the outward appearances, and here we have in this story Samuel about to anoint Saul 2.0. You look at the verses 6 and 7, and your mind should immediately jump back to 1 Samuel 9:2, the description of Saul. Saul a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. I think it's so ironic. Here you have Samuel, I mean the guy is just grieving. He's crying over the failed leadership of Saul. And he's about to anoint his clone. You know what we need to take away from this, from the scriptures? I've got to stop trusting my own eyes, my own instincts, my own reasoning capabilities. Our perceptions tend to only run skin deep. Well, isn't he just so dynamic? She has a magnetic personality. That speaker, he's incredible. He knew just what I wanted to hear. Here's the problem with all of that it's superficial, it goes nowhere. I mean, some of us, we pride ourselves on being a good judge of character. You will be humbled if you think you're a good judge of character. I thought Ravi Zacharias was a good man for decades. You know, anyone can pull the wool over our eyes because we don't have the ability to see the heart like God does. So now, if I'm going to be a humble person, I've got to start admitting to myself, you know, I don't know as much as I think I know. I don't have enough intelligence, I don't have enough experience. I, in my best of times, make choices, and sometimes those choices are not the best choices. So what is God looking for? Well, he tells us what he was looking for in his next king, David. He was looking for heart. He looks at the heart. Second Chronicles 16.9 tells us God is scouring the earth. He's looking to and fro, looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now, biblically speaking, the heart is the center, the core of who you are. It's the seat of your emotions, your will, your desires. All that encompasses you really is stationed right there in the heart. And and the law, the foundation of the law is what? Love God, with all of your heart. All of your heart. If you've ever asked yourself the question, what is God looking for from me? His heart? Now, David was a man after God's heart because his heart was devoted to the Lord. In Psalm 57.7, he says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast you could translate that word steadfast as fixed i like that fixed you know what it means to be fixed well really it's the state of being obedient and submissive to god which is the opposite of wavering sometimes with god and sometimes not with god no it's the state of my submission and obedience to the will of god which reflects the quality of my heart So over the years, I've actually heard people justify their actions and their motives with their heart. They come and they say something like this. I'm a pastor, so I'll have these kind of conversations sometimes. I know that what I'm about to do is wrong, but it feels right in my heart. Now, that's such a convoluted thought process when you think about it, right? I mean, is it wrong if their heart's feeling that way? Well, the answer according to the Bible is yes, because God's the one that determines right and wrong, not my heart. And the measure of my heart is not how I feel about things. It's actually how I act in correspondence with God's will. I mean, we know that actions speak louder than words. The abuser sometimes says, I do this because I love you, and we would respond to the abuser, no, if you love them, you wouldn't do that. So actions speak louder than words. I can say all day long, my heart is fixed on God, but if my life, my obedience doesn't correspond with that, then it's not. Isn't that what Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. The psalmist in Psalm 119, 167 said, I have obeyed your laws, for I love them very much. And David, the man after God's own heart, said in Psalm 19, your laws, they're more valuable than gold, sweeter than honey on the comb. Do you love God's commands? Do you long for his purposes to work out in your life? Are you so committed to the way that God has ordered the universe, his laws, his natural laws, that you're willing to stick to those things, even when the culture is kind of topsy-turvy and it's saying, well, that's still right, but that's not right anymore. Well, if your answer to those questions is yes, then your heart is fixed. On God and according to Jesus you love him because it says if you love me you'll obey my commands so you're fixed and that's just where you need to be well let's kind of recap here a little bit we've looked at two crucial points when it comes to this idea of perception and choice we ask the question who should choose you for yourself or should God choose for you And then we looked at the basis of God's choice, and that's really perception, right? God looks beyond the external, and he can see down to the core of who you are. And he longs for a fixed heart. Now I want us to look at one more component of God's choice, and it's really the foolishness of God's choice. Let's pick up this story again at verse 11. This is when Samuel asks for one more son. He says, to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and handsome and had beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Jesus Where he was born was Bethlehem, but he originated or he was known as being from Nazareth, a non-place. And what we're learning right here about David is David is a non-person. Why do I say that? Well, Samuel had a very clear instruction to Jesse, bring all of your sons. So not seven sons, eight sons. But Jesse, for whatever reason, doesn't bring David to the party. Now, I don't think it's because Jesse didn't love David or didn't like David. I think it was because Jesse just didn't see him as a good option to bring to the party. I mean, let's just be honest. David was a little different, okay? I mean, this boy with ruddy appearance and he's handsome and all, but boy, he looks like he lives out in the wild. And he's walking around with his harp all the time. He's like starry-eyed, his head's in the clouds. He's singing and making up new songs all the time, and there's no one to listen to the songs. He's just singing them to himself, not doing any of the work around the house that he could be doing. And he makes up these whoppers of stories. I mean, the other day he comes home and says that he fought off a bear. Yeah, right, David. I mean, he's a wiry boy. He can wrestle with his brothers. He almost beat Eliab the other day. He's not going to defeat bear bear what is that and he smells too just like those sheep i mean poor old Jesse's sitting there thinking "Ah, we better leave david out of this conversation let him be with the sheep let him be in the field let the adults have the conversation he needs to grow up but samuel says is there one more son and just odd isn't it Put yourself in that room for a minute. You're sitting there and you just learn that Samuel's about to anoint the next king. What are you thinking right now? Well, I'm thinking the old man has finally lost it. He's going to anoint David? We are messed over. I mean, the Philistines are going to stomp all over us. As you look at the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, God does things like this, and I think maybe sometimes that's why we want to choose for ourselves, because he selects a teenage boy to be the next king. I don't know if I can trust God with my next big decision. I mean, what is that? Why does God choose like this? Well, some of us look at this story and we look at it and we say, well, he gave us the answer. God's looking for the heart. David's a man after God's own heart. That's why he chose David. Heart, 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 heart. And that's part of the answer, but that's not the whole answer, because if that's the answer, then it turns the message of the Bible upside down on its head. Uh, David, if if God chose him for heart, is somehow then morally superior to all of us. He has this like inherent goodness quality that most of us can't attain. But the Bible says what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And David even acknowledges this in the Psalms. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth. So there's nothing inherently superior about David. You think there wasn't other boys in Israel that had fixed hearts? Of course there was. He wasn't the only one. No, God is demonstrating something else about his choice here. Listen closely. He chooses the foolish options absurd options, far out there options to showcase his own glory. The the choice of David is not ultimately about showcasing David's heart. It's ultimately about showcasing God's glory. I mean, do you think that God would get more glory if the conventional solution played out every time? Of course not. If that hunky saw turned out to be the right king for Israel, God wouldn't have gotten the most glory out of that situation. Or think about the story of Gideon. God calls him to fight against the Midianites. He brings 30,000 soldiers to the battlefield. God says, nope, that's way too many. We're going to whittle this down to 300. Why, God? Why would you do such a thing? We're already way outnumbered. Because if you win the battle with 30,000, you'll think that you did it. He wouldn't get the most glory out of that situation. He wouldn't get the most glory if he took a nation that was already established and strong and brought them into the promised land. So he brings Israel into the promised land. He wouldn't get the most glory if he had raised up Saul. So what does he do? He takes this ruddy shepherd boy and he makes him a legendary king in Israel. He wouldn't get the most glory if Jesus was born in Jerusalem. So what does he do with Jesus? He has him born of a nobody named Mary, and he's from a non-place called Nazareth in a despised region called Galilee. All over the place in Scripture, this is what God is doing. And the point that he's making is that this is his story. It's his story. Maybe you've heard it said before, history is his story. It's not your story. It's not my story. It's not the historian's story. It's his. But here's what's incredible. It's his story, but he so generously invites his people to participate in it. That's what God's doing here in 1 Samuel 16. He's inviting David to participate in this story. He's basically saying to the young boy, listen, I will make you a king, and if you will fix your heart on me, you will have a legendary role in this great story that I'm unfolding. And you know what? God invites you to do the same thing. It's his story. It's his ultimate plot You can be a part of your story, and your story, I just want to suggest, is very, very small. Or you can link up with the greatest story that's ever been told, and God will give you a subplot in that story. Now you think to yourself, well, how do I get a subplot? And will my subplot matter in the big story? Of course it will matter. We've got to stop evaluating the best stories on the stories that are happening right now. And we get so enamored by the stories that are playing on the news cycle. Well, we've already seen, like, some things are in the news cycle for two days. Some things will never be remembered. And we think it's the most important thing happening. But when you think about it from an eternal perspective, the real stories that will be told in heaven are not the stories that are being told right now. The stories in heaven will be a mother who's raising her children. In ministering the Lord to them. The stories in heaven are gonna be a story where there's a guy from a village. No one knows his name except for his own village. No one knows the village. But this guy meets someone, he trusts Jesus as his savior, he goes back to his village, and that village turns to Christ. The stories that will be told in heaven will be you as a worker when you go to your job and you really listen to Colossians 3.23, work is unto the Lord, and you're in that space, salt and light. The stories that will be told in heaven will be the person who's humbly serving out in the community to the poor, who God loves and God knows and God cherishes. Those are the real stories. Think to ourselves, well, that's the case how well the answer to that question is i don't know but i do know that god loves to use those kind of stories paul told us in first corinthians chapter 1 verses 27 to 29 god chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong god chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not and think about it david was not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I'm glad that God works this way because if God didn't work this way, I have no shot at having a story. I mean, who in this room is the smartest person in America? And don't raise your hand. Who is the greatest leader in America? Who's a billionaire? Who's right now living out their modeling career, traveling all over the world? Probably none of us. And even if you were any one of those people, that's not ultimately what matters to God. He's not interested in those things. He's interested in other things. So how? Again, I can't tell you exactly how your story is going to play out. Every story happens differently, but I can tell you that all the purpose is the same. It's God's glory. Now, I'm going to close our time with uh, another guy telling his story. It's a guy named Justin Lorig. He grew up here in the church, and uh, he was a youth student here, and now he's serving in ministry in Centerville in Virginia. Justin's a great guy. In some ways, he's like King Saul. He's really tall, and he's handsome, but When it comes to the matters of the heart, he's like David. His heart is fixed on God. And he doesn't rely on the superficial. He relies on the heart. So as you hear him unpack his story, start thinking about your story and ask, How is God working out in my life? Let's look.
1: good morning obc for those of you that don't know me my name is justin lorig and i grew up going to austerville baptist church but today i am making this video from centerville virginia Um, centerville is about 30 minutes outside of dc and i have the privilege of working at a church down there called centerville baptist church i currently serve as their middle school ministry director and i am just grateful that god has given me an opportunity to be in full-time ministry and to reach middle school students with the gospel message and disciple and train up that next generation with what it means to follow Christ. Uh, But today I'm here to share uh, a little bit about my call to ministry, some of the ways that I discovered how God had gifted me, and really just share a bit of my story as an encouragement for you. Um, and so as I mentioned earlier, I was someone who grew up going to Osterville Baptist Church. I was very involved with the kids ministry, very involved with the student ministry, but I was not someone who saw myself uh, in full-time ministry in the future. But God continued to work on my heart and just uh, lay that desire on my heart over time as I got more involved in church. And I remember just coming to this realization that if this whole thing is for real, right, If Jesus truly came down to this earth died a painful death for me and for you yet rose from the grave three days later conquering sin and conquering death then that is something worthy of dedicating my life towards that is a message that needs to be proclaimed and so i could sense that god was just tugging on my heart to be someone in a full-time ministry role that um, was just very passionate about preaching the gospel to students and being involved in student ministry and so I could sense that God was laying that on my heart but even still I had many fears and insecurities that were weighing me down as well but God is so good and he just placed a lot of really good people in my life that helped me to overcome those fears and insecurities there were many pastors at OBC uh, many family members that I had many friends and and other believers that were all working together um, being used by God to just encourage me and equip me for this next season in my life and a passage that was super uh, impactful for me was Isaiah chapter 6 which covers Isaiah's call to ministry and there's just uh, in that passage Isaiah uh, 6 8 he makes that famous proclamation where he just says here I am Lord send me, God use me however you see fit and um, I just came to the realization that that's the type of faith that I wanted to have. You know I didn't have all the answers, I didn't feel like I was necessarily gifted in all these different ways, but I just had that posture of availability to say God use me however you see fit. Um, Even when I have weaknesses, I want to recognize that those weaknesses are an opportunity for you to shine through me. and. over time i just began to discover some of those giftings as well too and um just so grateful for osterville baptist church and the opportunities i had to serve there and through a lot of those serving opportunities i was actually able to discover my giftings and that's kind of the funny thing about it oftentimes we think we have to figure out our giftings and then find a place to serve but my story was actually kind of the opposite i was thrown into a lot of different roles, not entirely sure about some of the ways that God has gifted me, but through serving in some of those areas, I was actually able to discover um, that I was really passionate about that, or I love that, or that God had gifted me in that area. And so sometimes it just took a, a leap of faith to get involved in something and then see how God could use me through that. And so God used a lot of different things like that, Um, just like I shared, meeting with other believers, having people pour into me, having people disciple me, uh, spending time in the Word, and spending time serving others. God used all of those things to eventually just confirm that call to ministry for me, Um, and He continued to place that desire on my heart for me to reach other people with the gospel message, and ultimately I just had to make that leap and trust God and say, I'm I'm going out to serve you, and um, I'm trusting that you are going to work in and through me uh, while that's happening. So I just hope this story was an encouragement for you. Um, I just hope you know that whatever God is calling you to, he wants to strengthen you and he wants to use you and he wants to write a story where he gets all the glory. And so even when we have weaknesses or insecurities or whatever it is, God can shine through some of those things. And that's something that God taught me at OBC and I hope it's an encouragement for you today as well.